So Vinyl Me Please just released the story of Quincy Jones vinyl box set. And this Motley crew here is going to guide you through each of the eight albums. I'm Alyssa Leon Smith, Vice President of Business at Quincy Jones Productions. I've been honored to work with Quincy for eight years now, and I can confirm he really, really is that dude. I'm Sonarin Glinton. I'm a podcast host and a producer. I'm a contributor to NPR's Planet Money, and I have spent a career covering the intersection of the culture and the economy. And I'm Justin Richmond, host of Broken Record and vice president of I Have No Business Being Here. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, man. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So it's really impossible to fully capture Quincy's legacy and his influence on pop culture, entertainment, music history, and beyond in a 30-minute episode. But we are going to try to do the best we can. So let's get right into it. So to start off, we have Walking in Space. Yeah, its title comes from two of the major events of the 60s, the moon landing and also the musical Hair, which (laughs) sounds crazy (laughs) when you think about it. Hair is to the 60s like what Hamilton was to like, you know, the time we're living in now. Like it changed everything. Like it, It reflected the era that it was in. The music sounded much more hip. And it was one of those big events, maybe not as big as the moon landing, but it is a, it is one of the major. But it, it brings Broadway and popular music back together, yes. which had drifted apart for a while by that point. Yeah, for a few years at that point. Walking in Space is Quincy's highest charting and best selling album as a leader up until this point. Peaks at number 56 on the Billboard 200 chart, number two on the jazz chart and number six on the R&B chart, then called the soul chart. It's Quincy's first albums with AM. They have Run Together that births some of Quincy's best known projects. And Walking in Space is a personal favorite of mine. Why is that? You know, people talk about Desert Island Discs. Like, I, I can't do a Desert Island Disc. I can't choose just five albums. But I know if I had to choose a genre to pick, like, I could only listen to one genre on a Desert Island, it would be jazz, 100%, no questions asked. But Mother Love is like, rock and roll and kind of the experimental music of the 60s and 70s. And this music just beautifully blends the two. It's the drumming from Bernard Purdy, the bass playing from Ray Brown, people that played together on a bunch of different albums. So the sound is super familiar, but hearing it in this new context, even Ray Brown playing electric bass just really does something for me. It's just just my favorite Quincy. Alyssa, do you want to talk to us as our resident Quincy historian about kind of (laughs) where Quincy is in this period in his life? I'll do my best. (laughs) So Quincy was working at Mercury Records in the early 60s. He got this job really to pay back a debt that he owed from his free and easy tour. So that's a whole other story, which we can go down. But just know for everyone listening, he had a huge debt that he needed to pay back. And he got a job working as the VP of Mercury Records. So, you know, first Black American to be an executive at a major record label. So that was a huge, huge accomplishment for him. And during this time, he was working with Leslie Gore and had 18 hits with her. Just, Just my party I'll cry if I want to. Yeah. <laughs> a personal model of mine. Exactly. <laughs> so he had this huge, huge time of his career with just producing hits, right? Hit after hit. 
And then he really, really wanted to go back into film scoring because he had first done a Swedish film score back in 1961. And then Sidney Lumet had asked him to score The Pawnbroker, and that landed him his first American scoring assignment. So he did that and, of course, was still working at Mercury. And then I think he really caught that scoring bug and he was like, I just need to break free. Even though it was such a huge honor for him to be in this position as VP, he knew in his heart of hearts he needed to go spread his wings and do more film scores. So he made the jump from New York to Los Angeles, went out there, landed a few shows scoring Hey Landlords theme song, some Hertz commercials, really just a bunch of different things, one after the other. And during this time, he would always say now when we talk about it, that a lot of people would only score one film a year. He was doing like three films a year. So he was completely full speed ahead. And he just got super, super burnt out towards the end of the 60s. And he really felt I need to take a break and just go straight back into recording. So he did that. He left that period of his life to dive straight into recording. And then here we find ourselves in the A&M years, as we like to call it, which is a period of him releasing albums on A&M from 1969 to 1981. So that leads us back into Walking in Space. Yeah. So Walking in Space produced by Creed Taylor. I don't think we mentioned him when we were talking about this is how I feel about jazz, but that was also produced by Creed Taylor. And it's interesting when you listen to those two albums, this is how I feel about jazz. Walking in space. You can hear the continuity between the two. And I was trying to figure out what Quincy's relationship with Creed Taylor was. So I was looking up some interviews And Creed and Quincy meet in the 50s. They're about the same age. Creed Taylor, of course, in 1960, starts Impulse Records, pretty quickly leaves there and ends up at A&M, where he then starts CTI at the end of the 60s and sort of has his whole career through the 60s of making jazz music that I won't call it crossover, but has wide appeal. You know, people like Wes Montgomery, who are winning a lot of Grammys throughout the 60s. And Quincy, when you think about also being a jazz cat who spends a lot of the 60s composing for soundtracks, is also spending a lot of the 60s making music for a very wide audience. So I kind of find the marriage of these two guys interesting. And by the time we get here to Walking in Space, this is really the culmination in my mind of a guy who loved big band and a guy who spent the last 10 years making soundtracks. This is an album of both of those things, the big band sound and the sort of broad appeal of soundtracks. You can hear things like this composition from like Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice. You can hear the way that he was composing for films like that on this album. I just thought it was so interesting. How many of these iconic movies, though, (laughs) he was doing? The Italian Job, you know, from the Sinatra album that we talked about earlier to 72, it's, it's almost two dozen scores. Like that is just like a crazy amount of real, real work. And these are not like small movies. Like that's In Cold thing. Blood, In the Heat of the Night, Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, like I said, Pawnbroker. They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, that is a, an underrated movie, by the way, <laughs> with Sidney Poitier. And Cactus Flower, which is an underrated soundtrack. His overall aim is, I can't really pick a category for this album, right? Where does this belong? 
And you see it also in other musicians. Miles Davis is searching. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, it's true. I mean, if 1959 is like the year for jazz, you know, Minga Sam comes out and Kind of Blue comes out and Take Five comes out. Dave Brubeck's Take Five. By 1969, jazz is in the kind of a precarious situation. The Beatles have come. And whereas before Broadway music, would often become standards. It's like, how many jazz musicians recorded album after album of Beatles songs? It's like, they started becoming standards in the 60s. It's, it's wild. They nope. had a little bump with Bossa Nova when that came in. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, was like it, was, it was hard going at this time. Absolutely. And the thing about Quincy that's incredible is it's like, he's never arrived. He's always arriving from the very <laughs> beginning, you know? And it's like, again, like, he's like, oh, I've had this great, illustrious jazz career. I've had this great, illustrious composing and arranging career. I'm just going to combine them. And it creates like a searching type of feel and sound that's not too dissimilar from what Miles is doing. You know, Miles and Smiles and, and those records at the time. And Hair, two of the songs on this record are from Hair. So again, you can't discount how important that musical was on the time and the sound. Like that music really created a nexus of popular culture and Broadway music that didn't exist for the few years prior since the Beatles had really come around. Yeah, and then also 1969 is, I mean, clearly an important year. Quincy's on the moon by this time. Literally. You know? <laughs> Literally, Quincy, like we were talking, like, climbing to the moon was yeah. on the moon, like, here we go. Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, we think of what happened in 1968, right? It's like all those cultural factors are, are happening. And in the next few albums, there's that sort of searching the redefined Black music, but that's a thing that is happening. And something slightly unrelated was that the the thirty billion dollar Negro, which is a landmark book, comes out that year. If you think of what are the soundtracks to this movement that is happening, I think Walking in Space is definitely one of those soundtracks that, it, as the culture is sort of figuring out, like where do we stand now as funk, soul, and R and R&B began their ascendancy. Yeah, and, and funk, soul, and R&B really is the time in Black music when it's like Black music is not just hip, but Black music is also like profitable, you know? Like between the time Quincy put out his last album as a leader and this one, like Motown's happened and Stax has happened. Like it's Black booming, music yeah. is big business, you know? And there's no coincidence this was one of his best-selling albums to that point. And Quincy doesn't strike me as a person who is afraid to get paid what he's worth, you know? I Absolutely. think he knew his music was worth something. And this is an album that I think really shows that you can make money on Black music. And well, now, well, you know, what's interesting with our next album is that this is where I enter into the stage. It was released just a few days after I was born. And happy wow. birthday. Yes, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. But but Body Heat is further along this evolution of figuring out what Black music is because it is definitely another thesis statement. Quincy is now fully dived in to the world of soul. He is like, I'm going to produce it, I'm going to make it, and I'm going to be a band leader with it. And he's bringing along cats from another genre. There's so much innovation that's going on it is synthesizer. It's Herbie Hancock moving music further. I'm going to hear elements of this album in almost every major performer after it. You're going to hear strains of this in Stevie Wonder. You're going to hear this in funk. Like, that's one of the things that's like so 
amazing about this album. It is culturally also adventurous because by this time, Quincy's relatively young still. He's in his 40s, still younger than I am. But it's like he's reaching this peak, what he would even call a peak would come just a few years later. But he's in his prime. And it's interesting that the music is still popular, but it still has that jazz core while it's innovating music and instrumentation. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that on this album, Herbie Hancock's there, Hubert Laws is there. So there is that jazz element to it still. But then you got people like Leon Ware, who are going to go on to like co-produce Marvin Gaye's I Want You, which is soaking in the sounds of the late 70s. And then it you, sounds like it. Yeah, and you see like people like Billy Preston. He's like, who, yeah. did, you, who did, you, did you get everybody on this thing? Yeah. And who is more of his own time than Billy Preston? We should point out a, a genius of Quincy's is being able to spot talent. All the time. All the time. And having this newfangled Herbie Hancock, people like Billy Preston, Bernard Purdy, like those folks who are on this album. Minnie Ripperton. Right. Like before Minnie Ripperton hit, she's on this album. He will always say, I don't know how to drive a car, but I know how to spot talent. <laughs> <laughs> and, yo, he does. He does. He absolutely does. The crazy thing about this whole time period to me is the fact that he basically met death face to face. I don't know if you remember this, but he had two aneurysms during this time when he was working on Body Heat. So he was just nonstop pouring his heart into the pages of his score. And then he has two aneurysms, one right after the other. And he also went to his own funeral. Like, how crazy is that? It's also one of my favorite stories that he tells because it is so inspiring. The fact that his friends came together, you know, Ray Charles and all of these people, because they knew he had this aneurysm. The news was not looking good. It was very bleak for the next surgery he had to undergo. So they all came together and threw him this beautiful celebration of life concert at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. So he's up there in the box, looking down at all of his friends, doing this beautiful tribute concert. And next to him is his brain surgeon because they're friends. And he's telling him, don't get too excited. You're going to pop that metal clip in your head. So it was this huge moment for him, but he also had to pretend like he wasn't really excited. So he's trying to suppress that he's excited to see this, but there's also such a weird mix of energy because he knows he's about to die. So if that happened, this would have been his last album, which is so crazy to think about. I had two aneurysms and uh, I thought I was going to die, you know. Anyway, they all memories of part, it's all part of life. I was just going to throw another thing in. Just a couple months before this album comes out, he has a baby. Every single stressful life event that you can imagine happening. Oh, yeah, and I got to put out an album. I have a baby <laughs> in March. Album's coming out in May. Like, and you wonder why. I mean, you got kids, Justin. <laughs> like, you wonder if, like, you can barely do a podcast and keep up with them. You're like, I'm going to have a baby and then do a landmark album. Do a landmark album. That, like, again, if he died after this album, if this was his last album, Lord, you know what I mean? This is what an album's going on. <laughs> this is a, yeah. It's just a walk-off homer, you know? It's a theme with Quincy. The thing with all these albums is like there would all be Kirk Gibson, you know, 1988 World Series, playing for the Dodgers, 3-2 count, yeah, it's down like one, Sinatra, runner on base. Yeah, Sinatra wants you to do an album. Okay, I got you to fly me to the moon. You know, we need to give Leslie Gore a hit. Oh, yeah, um, it's my party. But it's interesting 
a thing he does with jazz, a thing he does with soul, is there is more than that small part of him <laughs> that was trained by Nadia Boulanger. He's like, I ain't no joke. Yeah. And I'm going to bring real musicianship. And like you said, even the instrumentation is yeah. innovative. Wah-wah pedals and things like that. This comes back to this thing of Quincy's just always arriving. He's in, even as he's dying, it's not that he's arrived. He's putting out body heat and setting himself up to, six years from now, produce off the wall. His career, it, it, it's, it's sage-like the way he's able to make the right decisions at the right time. Body Heat is one of my favorite tracks. And obviously, not only is the album a classic of the 70s, but the song Body Heat gets sampled by Tupac, becomes an all-time classic of the 90s. Alyssa, can you run down some of the samples that are on this album? I mean, like you just mentioned, Tupac, Casey and JoJo on How Do You Want It, to even just recently Chris Brown and Tyga and YG released Rodeo, which features Body Heat. And... I mean, there's so many more, but those are just a few that come to mind. I actually have this notepad on my iPhone notes of various samples that I hear when I'm listening to music. And I'm 100% sure that Beyonce's Love Drought actually samples Everything Must Change. At five minutes and 14 seconds in her intro. Like if you listen to it, I'm telling you, it's sped up. I have not confirmed this online. I've looked it up, can't find it anywhere, but I promise you it is. Spoken like a businesswoman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, watch out, Beyonce. <laughs> watch <laughs> out, watch out. You will get a nasty letter from my solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. There's so many people covering just this one album, like yeah. let alone his entire body of work. Yeah. But I mean, even members of Earth, Wind & Fire just released a new cover with a new artist named V. Jordan last year on YouTube. The impact that this one album has, you know, we're in, what, 2022. And this happened in 1974. Yeah, the Earth, Wind & Fire cover of If I Ever Lose This Heaven is so good. And I didn't really hear it as an Earth, Wind & Fire song. But now when I listen to the Quincy version, I, I still, I hear Earth, Wind & Fire. I'm like. Right. Yeah, this is, it's beautiful. Speaking of what ifs, that's like my great what if. The know. Quincy produced. Yeah. Earth, Earth Wind & Fire. Fire. Yeah, that's, oh, that's my. It's like, there are a couple of Quincy projects that didn't come to fruition. That, that I'm have. like, that you're like, I just like, I, I'm mad that he was going to do another Sinatra album, for instance, and they're going to be going to be a, th a three album Sinatra set with Lena Horn. I was like, sometimes I've seen Quincy and I'm look at him like cross-eyed because like I still want my Lena Horn album. I asked him one time, who's the one artist you didn't get to work with? You wished you could have. Bobby McFerrin. Shocks oh. me. I thought I was expecting Earth Wind and Fire or or you know producing a Stevie right. Bobby McFerrin. Don't sleep on Bobby. Don't sleep on Bobby. Oh, no, no. Did you ask a follow-up? <laughs> I, for, I did. I forget what I forget what it was. <laughs> this is a while ago. I know. That and Whitney Houston. Oh, Whitney was the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He said Bobby and Whitney. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bobby McFerrin. Yes. And Whitney. <laughs> that Bobby and Whitney. <laughs> so, Alyssa, did you have a favorite song from Walking in Space? kind of a tie between Killer Joe and Love and Peace, but 
Killer Joe for me is such a fun one when you just listen to it. But also that was the kickoff song to Q85, which was the birthday celebration that we did for Quincy on BET just back in 2018. So that is always cemented in my mind as that first kickoff song. And then Love and Peace that was playing during that really beautiful scene of him and his children in the Quincy documentary that was released on Netflix in 2018 as well. So those two are sort of cemented in my mind. I have like a three-way tie. Like walking in space is so magnificent. It's like, yo, 12 minutes of just of bliss and and, and Rashawn Roland Kirk's on it. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> it, it, it blows my mind. But then my picks are like, to you, Alyssa, it's like Killer Joe. It's like the perfect song, probably. But I still can't say it's clearing away my favorite, even though it is clearly it's a perfect song. Because uh, also Love and Peace, man, it's just something about that song. It's peaceful. It's so peaceful. <laughs> and if, if I'm ever feeling anxious or or tense or wound up, I, I can put that on and it instantly just de-stresses me. It doesn't fall into easy listening, though. You know, it's still a very complex song. It just happens to be moving and peaceful. How about you, Sonari? I mean, I have to say Killer Joe, because is it Benny Golson? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like Cleveland's own making it happen. And we got Ray Brown. To me, those two musicians just so phenomenal. I mean, I'm I'm a hardcore, like Ray Brown is like really, really one of my favorite human <laughs> beings. But those combinations like of old and new and really signaling what's going to come in the next decade, I think, is, is like just makes it. I love this song. I listen to it all the time. Alyssa, what do you have as a Quincy quote? So this one requires a bit of context. Back in the day when Quincy was putting out all this new music, all of the critics were saying, how can you sacrifice your jazz roots? You know, you're such a sellout. And then his response is like, okay, you better have something to sell and know how to sell it. So that was really his comeback to every single person. You better have something to sell and know how to sell it. Right. I mean, it's true because he sold it and he's been doing it and he's still doing it to this very day. So the critics don't stop, but he doesn't either. No, nobody ever woke up and got mad at a at a number one hit. <laughs> like, I love that idea. It's like, what did he say? A hit record would change your life in ways Can't you didn't even, even imagine. Know. Yeah. You want to be successful. Of course, these people want to be successful. So I think that's about it, y'all. Click like, click share. Give us a five-star rating. Don't give us four. <laughs> it's hard to say that the best is yet to come on the next episodes. But what's interesting is as great as these two albums are, they're a little bit of the heavy lifting. What I want you to listen to, folks, is listen through to all the influences that you've heard now. And on the next episode, we encounter two behemoths of Quincy Jones's discography, The Wiz and The Dude. Dude.